Welcome to Coastal Front. Join us each week as we sit down with the movers and shakers of Vancouver to discuss stories of business, politics, accomplishment, and failure. Our aim is to keep you dialed into what matters most in our city. Now, here's your host, Andrew Johns. All right. Well, here we are with Mark Tyndall. You're the professor of medicine uh, at UBC School of Population and Public Health. That's right. I've got that right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, Mark, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Thanks. Uh, we are going to talk about two main themes. One is going to be about drug policy in British Columbia as a topic that you're uh, well versed in. I'm going to love to hear what your your insight. And the other is this this hot topic right now about uh, the vaping act. You know, vaping sicknesses and deaths that apparently are going on. And I don't know much about that. I'm sure you do. Okay. So that's what we're going to dive into that right away. So Sounds uh, good. now we were just before we started, we were talking about um, Sarah Blythe, who you know, and hello, Sarah, if you're listening to the show, um, Sarah and I also know each other. And Sarah uh, helps run the the safe injection site in downtown East Side. Is that right? Right. The, yeah. um, we call them overdose prevention sites oh, because okay. they don't have the same sort of rules that a classic supervised injection site does. But okay. there's uh, in the downtown east side proper, there's uh, five of them now. Oh, and, are uh, in the province, there's, uh, I think, 28. Okay. So, uh, yeah, there's been a proliferation of uh, overdose prevention sites in the province. Yeah, yeah. In your view, um, are they are they doing the right thing? Are they is it is it working out? Is it is it good for our society that these sites are popping up and are they are they regulated oh uh yeah definitely i'm very uh very pro harm reduction i um i came to vancouver in 1999 and um that was a, a pretty bad time also for uh for deaths and hiv transmission and uh i was the uh co-lead uh, evaluator of insight when it opened in 2003 so i've been involved with uh supervised injection sites for almost 20 years and um and the we had insight in Vancouver um since 2003 as i say and nothing else um to accompany it uh, until uh 2016 and now uh because of the overdose crisis uh, a bunch of them have been able to open okay and and on the regulation side are they regulated is there is there yeah. Is there um, kind of um, some kind of body that oversees these to ensure that they're? Um, yeah, they're, they're I mean each properly? each regional health authority uh, takes some responsibility for them. So um, mm -hmm. yeah, there's uh, there they've been allowed to proliferate um, to suit the the clients and the and the environment that they're in. So there's a sort of a wide range of uh, of looks of the different uh, OPSs throughout the province, which is. Uh, which is good because um, one size doesn't fit all for all the communities. So, mm -hmm. uh, and even in um, Sarah's work on uh, on Hastings is basically right across the road from Insight, and so they have attracted different types of people who use the those two sites. Okay, okay. Now you mentioned earlier about um, when you first came to Vancouver in 1999, mm -hmm. there was a similar challenge that was being faced with along HIV. Right. And uh, I understand you you actually spent some time dealing with HIV actually in Africa. Is that right? Uh, yeah. My whole uh, medical career has basically been about HIV. So really? um, I, I, you know, I started medical school in 1982, and that was basically the first case of AIDS in, that was uh, ever reported uh, from uh, San Francisco, New York. And then uh, 
I was involved initially through my medical training. I was quite interested in uh, infectious diseases and uh, HIV. Mainly, my work in Ontario was around about gay men. And then in uh, the, I guess, 1990, I moved to Africa to work with HIV prevention in Nairobi in Kenya. So I was there for almost five years. And um, and then my next uh, my next job was uh, looking at HIV among people who use drugs. So mm. uh, it's basically been my uh, HIV prevention's kind of been my whole career. Wow! Wow! Yeah, I didn't realize that. Well, on that topic, then if we can dive into that a little bit more, you know, I, I grew up uh, born in '74. I grew up, um, you know, around the time in which HIV was becoming a, a major issue, a major topic. Mm. Um, as a young guy, you know, turning my teens and my twenties in the in the early '90s. Um, and there were obviously lots of people dying from this. I mean, the, the time at that time, as you know, there is an expectation that without a cure, you know, this was going to become like the biggest killer on the planet. Yeah. Um, and then miraculously, it seems like, and I don't know enough about it. It mm. seems like it se doesn't seem like anybody talks about HIV and AIDS anymore. And I'm, my wife, yeah. who's got a medical background, she's a dentist by trade. So she's got a little bit more medical back background than I do for sure has said that, you know, most people today, if they do contract uh, uh, HIV, mm. will likely live a fairly long life because of the new medicines that are out. Is that true? Oh, yeah. No. So, um, I mean, new infections still occur, and mm -hmm. there's still, a, um, you know, a, uh, I think 12,000 people um, in Canada with living with HIV. So, there's still a lot of people with HIV, um, but they're um, many, most are on treatment and their viral load is suppressed. There's about 250 new cases of HIV every year in the province of British Columbia. So there's still some transmission, um, mainly among uh, uh, gay and bisexual men. Mm -hmm. um, but again, yeah, I mean, there, it's still, there's stigma attached to HIV. Clearly, um, we want to prevent every case we can. But um, as far as your um, medical outlook, it, things are are pretty good. So you take a pill a day. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, as far as a global epidemic, it, uh, you know, it still uh, killed like 20 million people and there's uh, another 20 million that are infected. So it's a, it's a huge, you know, globally. Still, globally. Yeah. So it's still massive. And uh, that, um, you know, and the, and the, though we made great steps in, uh, in treatment, it's not curable and uh, people have to remain on treatment and which um, means, uh, you know, taking pills every day. So, right. uh, or one pill every day. And, uh, if you stop taking your pill, HIV, uh, comes back. So, uh, okay. it's still a chronic disease for people. And I know this is going to be a silly question, Mark, but what is the difference between HIV and AIDS? Yeah. I mean, it's not it really a question anymore. Before yeah. there was adequate treatment, um, there was a list of opportunistic infections that, uh, you were in your immune system got to a certain point, you were more prone to get those. And if you developed one of those opportunistic infections, you were said to have AIDS. But, okay. um, it's, we follow now something called CD4, which gives a good, um, uh, a good measure of your immune status. And so, uh, people who keep their CD4 up are very unlikely to get any of these infections. And, uh, if you go below a certain point, then we, you know, that technically you sort of have AIDS, but it's really not a useful, uh, designation. Okay. I see. Uh, now, as far as the uh, drugs that have helped us uh, sort of suppress this, what, what, is it a virus? Is it a bacteria? What is it? What is yeah. Uh, HIV? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a virus. It's a uh, virus, a transmitted virus, and there's uh, the antiviral medications that are now available are yeah. very specific to the HIV target, okay. and so uh, they have very little other 
side effects. So yeah. they're very specific to the HIV virus. And is it is it just one drug company in particular that developed this, or has there been multiple mm-hmm. med- medicines that have come? Uh, out? There's multiple medicines. Uh-huh. There's different targets. So um, most of the even though people can generally take one pill, uh, it's a combination of uh, usually three different compounds that have different viral targets yeah. that work together. What, is it uh, one of the big drug companies that uh, developed these, or, or are they were they small? Um, Do you know the story there? Yeah, like most breakthrough drugs, it starts off quite small in yeah. like university laboratories and stuff, and right. then it's bought up by pharma companies, and they yeah. develop it further and they market it. So, right. um, you know, in the in the whole scheme of things, probably there's four or five active HIV drug producers in Canada right now, yeah. and uh, depending on the the next latest drug, uh, one company could dominate over another for a while and then yeah. kind of bounces around and yeah they buy each other up right <laughs> yeah. so. mark do you have a do you have a view on that from um from from how that that system works like do you have a i know i know if you listen if you listen to somebody like it's hard not to hear hear him shouting and tweeting but donald trump of course has uh been a quite a critic of the the cost of uh of pharma care mm. in the united states uh that these drug companies in his view uh, charge far too much for their drugs. Um, you know, their 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 argument, of course, is that there's a lot of money spent on research and development. Um, do you have a Do you have a view on the way the system works today? Is it Is it working? Is it broken? Is it problematic? Well, the fact that you know HIV good HIV treatment's been available since 1996, which is like you know 25 years ago, and the price per year of uh, antivirals hasn't changed very much. So it's still between twenty and thirty thousand dollars a year for somebody to be on antivirals. And is it really? uh, clearly a lot of people have been uh, you know, uh, some of these drugs have lost their patent, but they've been replaced by newer, slightly improved drugs. So uh they man the the pharma industry and as far as HIV goes has managed to keep the drug prices quite high mm. for countries that can afford it. Whereas generic treatment, um a year of uh, antiviral Treatment in Canada, let's say, is twenty thousand dollars, and a year of uh, treatment in in a place like Africa is uh, about two hundred dollars. Is so, that right? Um, hepatitis C is another great example where, okay. um, when the new drugs for hepatitis C were introduced, which are extremely effective, um, they were a hundred thousand dollars for a, a six to twelve week course. Um, Canada, I think it's kind of top secret, but I think we're paying. Um, between forty and fifty thousand dollars for a course, um, a course of treatment in Egypt is sixty dollars. Wow! So um, clearly, there's uh, the the uh, the manufacturing process isn't what's costing all the money. It's okay. uh, it's it's just, it's just nego- it sounds to me like it's just negotiating. Yeah. And 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 the, again, going back to what Donald Trump claims is that it, and well, actually, Bernie Sanders Sanders has said this as well. Uh, I listened to a podcast with him with Joe Rogan how he actually took some elderly people that needed some kind of treatment up to Canada hmm. to get drugs in Canada because it was cheaper. And they both claim that, that that's part of the problem is, you know, at least in Canada, we have a universal health care system. Yeah, we don't have a universal pharmacist, a pharma Pharm- care system, or, and that's what they're trying to get, right? Okay. So that was the big liberal platform this time. To, right. We should have a national program because it, the cost of drugs are, are up to the provinces to negotiate. Oh, so and those why negotiated at the provincial level. Yeah, so... Uh, so we the province of a... Ontario could be paying more or less for yeah. the same drug that the province of BC is paying. Yeah. So it's negotiated at the provincial level. Yeah. 
I mean, there's a lot of cahoots across the provinces. So, you know, companies yeah. will only go so low for a, a particular province, I'm sure. So, uh, but it is, uh, you know, it is all negotiated. And that once that, you know, um, the manufacturing costs of these drugs are not very high. So it's really just, uh, you know, marketing and continuing to sure. ensure profits. Well, I, I'm sure if these treatments are, you know, hundreds of dollars versus tens of thousands of dollars in countries like, uh, in some countries in Africa, mm. I'm pretty sure that the pharma companies are not doing that out of like goodness of their out of their heart. I mean, no, they're not. I, they're not supplying it at all. So these are all um, oh, the, oh, kind of rogue generics. Oh, so I see. India, Sorry. gotcha. Um, you know, different Brazil, different countries um, have decided to produce their own, and uh, ethically, it just seemed like the right thing to do. Um, but there was huge delays, though. I mean, we had good treatment in Canada starting in 1996, and good treatment arrived in Africa, I don't know, 2004. Like, there was a huge, huge delay. So we, the idea was that these countries could not afford treatment. Yeah. Um, and, which is obviously ethically yeah, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so. It's amazing. So you have, a, you have a found a cure, or maybe not a cure, but a, a treatment, but not everybody gets access to it because they don't have the money. Right. Like whole countries, like whole millions, countries, of people. millions of people. Yeah, and I guess the the farmer the pharma side of that argument would be well, you know, if we were to actually sell this to everybody at the generic prices, we'd close up shop because we wouldn't be able to afford to have all our research development. That I mean, I'm just trying to say what they would yeah. probably say. Is that fair? Uh, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm sure. I mean, we yeah. you know maybe don't want to go down this rabbit hole forever, <laughs> but I okay. mean the the. Yeah. Uh, you know that we know that uh, a large proportion of the profits go to marketing, not research and development. Right. And uh, for instance, the Hep C drug um, was developed on a small scale in a small lab. Okay. And Gilead bought that compound for ten billion dollars. So they didn't invest in the research. They invest. Just, they paid for all they that research yeah. uh, based on the idea that they could. Um, you know, really make a profit on the new compound if they marketed it properly. And they did in the first, uh, they, they got their money back within the first six months of the hep C and then it's just been gravy ever since. So, wow. um, so the companies themselves, I mean, I you know there's obviously a, a research that goes on and, yeah. um, but a lot of the real discoveries are, uh, made in, in smaller labs and, yeah. uh, the pharma companies are more in the market of trying to tweak existing treatments and uh, and market them differently. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, as far as breakthrough drugs, I think in my world of infectious diseases, yes. certainly HIV has been in my uh, you know in my generation, and now more recently hepatitis C is definitely a, a huge breakthrough. Yeah. Um, but the other antibiotic parts, things have, have really lagged behind, and uh, you know we could into we could talk forever yeah. about antimicrobial resistance and things and the lack of any promising or not enough promising antibiotics in the pipeline so the apocalyptic story that you know in 10 years there'll be hospitals be filled with untreatable infections so that's a well wow. okay well that's definitely <laughs> a fascinating topic to yeah. go back on round two right okay well let's go back because i don't want to go down that rabbit hole mm -hmm. you did come in here to mm -hmm. talk with us about um, about drug policy in BC. Um, so maybe let's go back to uh, the, let's talk about opioids and, and fentanyl. Obviously, it's a, it's a big topic. Mm -hmm. um, there's been a lot of people who've died from this, not just in British Columbia, but globally. Yeah. Um, and as I, as I understand it, the supply chain for fentanyl 
is um, is is coming largely from Asia. Is that right? Well, uh, I th I think a lot of it's tracked to that, but it's all done by organized cartels for the most part. Yes. So, um, you but know, you don't need to to do fentanyl. It's more of a chemical based. You don't need plants, do you? No, it's totally a synthetic yeah. uh, morphine compound. So yeah. it's a um, so a design for a long acting opioid pain control. Yeah. And so it is uh, manufactured uh, with a series of ingredients and. Yeah. Uh, and chemical compounds and uh, procedures. So, uh, so the raw, both fentanyl and the raw materials around fentanyl um, have been tracked uh, a lot to China mm -hmm. um, because they they have a hundred thousand pharma companies in China and they, they can pretty much send what they want. So, yeah. uh, but you know, I think the focus should not be on where the supply is. Excuse me. The the supply is really driven by the demand. And uh, so the whole um, introduction of fentanyl into the system is, uh, is directly related to our drug policies and prohibition. So it's, uh, it's a, as we clamp down on certain drugs, other ones show up. It's so predictable. Right. And so, you know, um, we first noticed an uptick in number of people dying of overdoses um, about uh, 2014, 2015. And in the province of British Columbia, you know, we keep track of people dying of unintentional overdoses and it's been two or 300 a year for the past uh, decade or so. There was a, up until 2014. Yeah. Okay. And then, it, you know, 400, 600 started to go up. And then uh, it seemed to peak in uh, 2017. There was over 1,500 in the province. Um, 2018, another 1,500. This year, the final, you know, it's not the end of the year yet, but it will probably be between 1,000 and 1,200. So it's it's leveled off um, from what it was. Uh, but the um, nobody would have predicted, you know, four or five years ago that 12, you know, 12,000 Canadians would die of an overdose or 4,000 British Columbians. Right. That was um, not predicted at all and thought it was just a blip because um, fentanyl had not been in our drug supply before. And so basically following the, uh, both the toxicology of people dying, but also just the drug bus and drug testing that had been done, um, we went from a, a city that was pretty flush with heroin um, to a city with no heroin. So it's all really? people buying opioids now um, are buying fentanyl. And uh, at the beginning, uh, people were kind of caught off guard, but anybody buying the, the street drugs now... Um, totally understand and expect they're getting fentanyl. So the whole system's been, uh, uh, been incredible. changed. Yeah. So it that spike incredible. is directly correlated to the, the, the sort of uptake of, of fentanyl. Yeah. It's all been replaced. Um, the, the hair, our heroin supply, which, uh, heroin is not as potent as fentanyl and it's more, uh, predictable to uh, kind of mix and, and match it and the potency of it. Fentanyl is so concentrated that uh, it's very difficult to uh, come up with a, a proper distribution or proper dose because it's it, when you buy a, a little baggie of, uh, of powder, it used to be white, but now it comes in all different kinds of colors. Um, the, a very small proportion of that is fentanyl and the, uh, the others, other fillers and things. So because you... If you took just straight fentanyl, a little baggie, you wouldn't tolerate that. Right. So, uh, so since it's very, uh, uh, very difficult to mix it properly, you get some bad batches hitting the streets, mm. and uh, and also because it's so potent, you get people whose tolerance is uh, 
is a, a bit low for one reason or another, and uh, so they just get a get more than they can handle. And, and they, would this die. relate to why you hear examples of young young people who maybe have never even really done drugs before, or they barely touch drugs? They mm. they they try fentanyl once, and and they're they're dead. Yeah, right. fentanyl would not be your first drug that you want to try. Um, right. So many people, you know, the when. Uh, Oxycontins were readily available, um, and then and, and even heroin. Um, you know, it, people could could usually adjust their dose and and not overdose. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, somebody that's totally uninitiated, uh, fentanyl would not be the first drug that you'd want to expose yourself to, right. just because it's so potent. Sure, um, people who have had a lot of experience with uh, with opioids uh, build up a tolerance, and uh, you know, the fact the whole drug supply is now fentanyl and not everybody's dying. So there's people out there on the streets today who will take fentanyl six or eight times today and um, you know, they won't overdose. Okay. Um, it, it's not a, it, the fentanyl doesn't kill people on its own. It's just, you have to make sure you take the right amount. Right. And, uh, and so people are not, you know, the stuff they buy is just totally unregulated and unpredictable. Sure. And that's why also you see waves of uh, overdoses in the city. So you go to a, from a slow week where you know, there's a few overdoses to catastrophic weeks or weekends when, you know, 30 people drop. And so, so it's, a, you know, a new batch comes on and it's oh. way too potent. Wow. So it's, and, 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 and Mark, yeah. sorry, just yeah. for one sec, because mm-hmm. this is where you're going to see how ignorant I am around the whole world of, of the street mm-hmm. drugs. What is the difference between an opioid and fentanyl? Is an opioid more of a generic parent kind of? Uh, yeah, opioid is just, it captures the whole class. So oh, okay. heroin's an opioid, um, codeine's an opioid, morphine's an opioid. So they're, they're all, um, they're euphoric kind of drugs. They uh, treat pain and they're also uh, respiratory depressants if you take too so the whole class is uh, is opioids and and fentanyl would be considered a very uh, potent synthetic opioid you've probably also heard of carfentanil which is a kind of cousin or analog of fentanyl and okay. that that's also been detected in our system and again it's much like other opioids only it's super concentrated so a very small amount of carfentanil uh, can cause easily cause overdoses and so it's really uh Again, the the mixing of this, if it's done in somebody's basement in their blender, it, it's really hard to use carfentanil in any kind of controlled fashion. Right. Sure. But the drug itself is just like any acts like any other opioids, but you just would not take very much. And right. I mean, carfentanil, for instance, isn't used in medical practice at all. Fentanyl is widely used in hospitals and anesthetics, and it's it's quite common. The fentanyl patch, which was one of the first times I saw fentanyl on the street. Um, is very uh, common and effective uh, treatment given to people with chronic cancer-related pain. So it's a slow-release fentanyl. You put a patch on your arm. It's programmed to, or it, it absorbs in a very uh, slow fashion. So you get 24-hour pain relief by plunking on a patch. So it's you know it's highly effective that way. Uh, but people started. Um, diverting these patches onto the street and cutting them into strips and boiling them down and uh, wow, uh, that's how sorry. Uh, yeah, but that's what that's what people do with their drugs. Yeah, so. wow, incredible. Yeah. So when you look at the 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 leveling off of these deaths, um, not not to sound morbid, but is it just because 
there's already been so many people have died. There's not, there's not as many people taking it. Like there's just a lot of, or what is the reason that you think it's leveled off? Well, the most vulnerable people have definitely they're, they're, gone. They're gone. Um, and uh, there's, uh, you know, sadly there seems to be an uh, ever ending train of people, but, um, yeah. but you know, the people, a lot of people that I have known or, or were well known on the street have now gone. And, yeah. uh, so yeah, it can't last. Most epidemics sort of peak out just because you run out of vulnerable uh, yeah, people. Sure. There's still a lot of vulnerable people. I think one thing that lost in the um, statistics is that we have to also look at overdose calls and a number of actual overdoses. Because the one thing that we've done um, relatively well and probably the best we can is reversing overdoses. So obviously the first responders are much more versed and ready to respond quickly to overdoses. We have a whole army of community people with naloxone mm. kits on their belts. Um, reversing overdoses all over the place and their friends. Um, and the overdose prevention sites intervene in a lot of overdoses. So uh, we've uh, the reversals have gone up. And you can see in areas like the downtown east side where, uh, you know, it, I think the last I heard, it, it's like one in 25 overdoses calls actually die. So there's a, there's a lot of responders. Um, in more um, rural places where there's not as many people around, it can be like one in two because, mm -hmm. you know, if nobody's carrying naloxone, there's nobody around. Uh, carrying a what, sorry? Naloxone kit. Okay. So um, naloxone is a, you know, kind of magic, magic drug that um, dislodges the, uh, the compound from your brain receptors and you, you wake up. So um, I've attended a lot of overdoses now. So you go from somebody who's hardly breathing or not breathing at all, and uh, you inject um, um, some naloxone and, um, you know, in a, in a minute they start to shuffle around and start to bat their eyelids and in some cases dart up, sit up straight. I mean, it really is wow. quite an effective uh, anecdote to, uh, to an overdose, um, but you have to be there. You have to give it relatively quickly. And, yeah. Um, and even so then, it, we're still not really measuring very well the damage that occurs from people who are hypoxic for periods of time. So, what does that word mean? Like, so that don't have any brain going to the any air going to their brain. So okay. that you know, you come across. I've seen it myself. People that are really lifeless and blue, and they get naloxone and they sputter back awake. So it's pretty remarkable. Wow. Um, but. Um, it's not good for you not to have oxygen to your brain for periods of time. And, sure. um, there's people in the ICU today, I'm sure, who uh, have, you know, really were revived very late in the game and they've just had irrepar irreparable brain damage. Yeah. But there's probably a whole spectrum of brain damage out there that people can still function, but um, their you know, memory's impaired and sure. concentration's impaired and, and, yeah. and problems because they've had a, um, yeah, brain brain injury. Right, right. Mark, what is what is the definition of overdose? Like, how how does what what would you define that as? Yeah, that's a that's a pretty interesting question because uh, people who are using um, opioids uh, are looking for a state where they um, they call it nodding off, or so you you hit you want to hit a place where you're you are pretty sedate and uh, a lot of people after they inject you can see them you know looking like they're sleeping on the you know leaning against a wall or something and um technically they haven't overdosed and uh but it's so hard to tell there was a woman who died uh, a couple of weeks ago right outside the overdose prevention site who uh 
people knew she was lying there for quite some time, but figured she had just, you know, she was just sleeping it off. And, uh, you know, um, eventually somebody shook her and she, there was no life there. So, uh, and she was dead. So, uh, so it is a, people do look for a state many, many times where they are drowsy, um, but they're not overdose. So it is a fine line. Um, Certainly when people go down in, uh, you know, when they're observed in, in an overdose prevention site, you, you hear noise because they fell off the chair and they're on the ground and unresponsive. I mean, there's this really, uh, that, that's not hard to pick out. But there is a kind of fine line between an overdose and not an overdose. Now, a lot of people who are using these drugs also uh, do not get, you're not really searching for euphoria. They're, they're searching for not feeling sick. So they're, you know, uh, a lot of people do, um, you know, go on to the nod and uh, sleep, but there's a lot of people out there who are using regularly who you can't really tell they're um, functioning and they just, uh, they need the drugs because if they don't get them, they, they feel very sick. Wow. Fascinating. So, so when you look at the people that you've seen in downtown Eastside, let me, let me take a view of someone who doesn't, has ever really been down there. Maybe they see pictures on the news every now and then. Um, maybe they have the view of like, oh, you know, why don't those people just clean themselves up? Yeah. Um, can you kind of enlighten us in, in sort of uh, a little bit for those who've never really been down there or seen it? I mean, I have to admit myself going down to uh, to go see Sarah. It was I would talk to a few of these people, and it was quite fascinating because these people are actually for me. I was kind of surprised these people are quite normal. I mean, they're quite happy, friendly. You know, you kind of have this vision of these these. Uh, I mean, at least I had this preconceived view of these people being kind of like zombies and, mm. and, and down and out, but they were actually really friendly, happy people, but you could tell they had a real issue or had a problem. Yeah. You kind of hit, a, cu- hit yeah. a couple of things there. One is obviously the societal view is people should just stop using drugs and get on with it. How yeah. else could we tolerate 4,000 deaths and not really do very much about it? Yeah. Or how could we have just go through a federal election and it's not really even mentioned that 12,000 Canadians died? You know, imagine right. if, if 12,000 people died in airplane crashes or, you know, Ebola or these kind of things, you know, so it is, you know, there's no doubt about it that the, the public perception is that people should not be using these drugs. And, uh, if they are silly enough to be using these dangerous drugs, they know they're dangerous and they die. Like it's, you know, buyer beware and uh, yeah. blame the victim, you know? So sure. that's, I, there can be no other reasonable explanation to explain our society's lack of attention to this issue. So I'm, I think that's a sad statement, um, but that's. Do you think it's simply the fact that there's a socioeconomic sort of uh, correlation? I mean, I'm, again, I'm making an assumption here, but I'm assuming that most of the people that are in downtown East Side they didn't grow up in a middle-class family in West Side Vancouver or North Van. They probably... Well, everybody's got stories. There I are mean, people they, that definitely did. I'm sure there um, are. I'm sure yeah. you can... But, I mean, if you look at it, I don't know the stats. Look, I don't know. I'm yeah. just asking you. You have a better idea than me. No, there's a lot of generational issues. So, yeah. a lot of times, families are no family members, and they um, they end up there. The same kind of trauma. I mean, clearly, the... Uh, First Nations issues in our yeah. province. There's a disproportionate number of people with First Nations background who have yeah. gone through, you know, um, unimaginable trauma in their lives, and yes. they, they find themselves there. So, I think it's not maybe so much the socioeconomic status that you start out with, but more the trauma that you have to bear in your life. So, right. uh, 
you know, being a, I was worked there as a, a frontline doctor as well as a researcher, and I've talked to you know thousands of people as patients, and uh, um, everybody's got a a story, and yeah. um, and I guess you know pulling one word to describe it would be trauma, like yeah. whether it you know whether it's a an injury you suffered or a loss of a family member or there's or violence and abuse that you suffered when you were young. Sexual sure. violence is a huge issue, so yeah. a lot of people have. Uh, reasons that uh, they have, you know, used drugs to numb their pain. So yeah. most people down there um, are uh, numbing their pain with drugs. That's how it started. And then we put them in a situation where it's just more trauma on more trauma. So uh, a lot of people didn't start off in the kind of poverty that they're in right now. But mm -hmm. uh, there's people, you know, walking in Vancouver who don't have one penny to their name, basically. Yeah, sure. Every day is like, am I gonna, how am I going to survive today? Yeah. And so... Um, they never, nobody started out wanting that way, but we put them in a, a criminalized situation that we just make it worse and worse and worse. And we've tended to try and treat this problem as a criminal justice issue. Um, you know, a very large percentage of people down there have have, uh, have um, experience with the criminal justice system. A lot of people are in and out of jail all the time, in and out of, in and out of the police station, picked up all the time. So, I mean, there's, it's a, We've, we've got ourselves in a situation where we just keep re-traumatizing people over and over and over, sure. and then we expect them to stop using drugs. And um, it's just, they just will not. Because yeah. that's the only thing, you know, we kind of think of drugs as the problem, but the drugs for people using them for the most part are their answers. That's the only thing they have to look forward to in a day is right. getting, you know, getting uh, their mind off their, their trauma for a couple hours yeah. at a time. So. You That's know, a fascinating you, way to yeah. look at it. I've never yeah. actually had someone explain that to me before. Yeah. Um, would you say? Would you agree that we've made at least some progress in that? Uh, you know, in the eighties and nineties, like when I was growing up as a kid, uh, if you were a drug user, forget about the drug dealers and the drug mm. pushers; those were definitely criminals. Mm. But if you were a drug user, you were also a criminal. And it seems to me like, uh, at least I don't know if it's practically happening, but societally, I think people are moving away from the idea that if you're a drug user, you're a criminal. Is well, that, is that progress at all? I I think that maybe the attitude in the general public has shifted a little bit, but yeah. what's happening on the street hasn't changed very it hasn't. much. The numbers of people arrests arrests are not down; they're up. Really, we still have seventy percent of people in jail there on drug in our whole society. Our whole jail system is seventy percent drugs. <laughs> so, and wow. most of those, really? most of those are not violent. Most of those are people that you know they had to. Many of them have had to. Uh, so what are they getting arrested and charged with? Are they getting for using or for, for distributing? Well, it, it's so much of the the drug life is tied up with living on the margins and surviving. If you're getting, ex you have to pay extortionary prices for the street drugs. There's somewhere you need to find that money. And yeah. uh, often it leads to some sort of criminal activity. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's even if uh, police say they're not like frisking people and arresting them for possession of drugs. Um, their whole hustle to to survive in that environment is uh, puts them at high risk of the criminal justice system. Right, makes sense. Yeah. Even okay. for loitering, I mean, it's the way we treat people. You know, there's people are trying to sell stuff to get by. That the tragic thing is, you know, there's all these people selling all these goods on the street just to make a few bucks, and uh, we just we just pick them off one at a time. They come every day. They sweep the streets and take everybody's stuff, and uh, they shove the them police off. Do. Yeah, the city. I mean, it's all city, like we yeah. have to clean the sidewalks off, you know. Right. And uh, and these are the people that are trying to get by 
without doing something illegal, like right. blatantly illegal, yeah, right? Sure. So they're, you know, they're not uh, holding people up with a knife and yeah. uh, they're not, e they're trying not even to shoplift at London Drugs. I yeah. mean, they're, they're trying to do something else yeah. and uh, they're just such easy targets that yeah. we just uh, sweep them away. And so we, it's really we force, yeah, we force people into situations because they're not, they're going to need their drugs. And yeah. so uh, they're going to do something to get that drug. And the more uh, we push, the more desperate people get. Um, mo a lot of women uh, turn to the sex trade yeah. and uh, the violence associated with that. So there's a, it, yeah, we've, we've really created an environment that people can't get out of. And we've just made it worse and worse yeah. for people. And so I think, as you, as you started out, that we have made some progress that, you know, people are maybe not criminals just because they're using drugs. But uh, as long as drugs are um, illegal and criminalized, then we've created a whole underworld for this. And, right. uh, and people find it very difficult to break out of. Yeah. So are you of the view that we should uh, lift prohibition and really just allow uh, these to be uh, regulated, taxed, you know, to kind of move one step further from what we've just done, what's just ha happened with cannabis and yeah, I mean, there has to be stepwise. So the people that, you know, and again, um, we the issue of the what the overdoses, the curtain has been pulled back that there's a lot of people at risk. So it's not just people living in shopping carts in the downtown east side. So right. the overdose are all over the province. It's affected people from different socioeconomic classes and people kind of in the middle, um, the um, young men um, in the trades have been particularly hit hard with this as far as overdose deaths. So there was a lot of uh, opioid pill use in that population that uh, when we've uh, cut back on the prescriptions that they've been forced to go to the illegal market. So we've, uh, so that, you know, the focus can't just, just be on the downtown east side necessarily, but if that's, that's, that's the group that I'm working with and most familiar with. So mm -hmm. I, I do think that, um, because of this is really a poisoning epidemic that people deserve the opportunity to get something that's not poison. Right. I don't think we were ready to jump to this tax regulate buy like that. But right mm -hmm. now I just feel that the, um, the only really um, practical solution is to give people access to the drugs they want right now right. in a regulated fashion. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, the the direct impact of that would be there wouldn't be as many overdoses because people could have an alternative to buying mystery drugs and fentanyl. But the other thing we we're just talking about is trying to break the the hustle. So we if we sure. and we have experience with uh, regulated supply at the Crosstown Clinic, which has been operating for a decade. But there's about 140 people who go there every day for observed injections, and so the. The biggest benefit to those people is they wake up in the morning needing drugs, and instead of going to a dumpster or going to do some kind yeah. of criminal activity, they go to a nice medical clinic and they get their drugs, and right. uh, their lives are transformed instantly because yeah. they don't have to hustle. And right. so I think that's a, a key thing, and if we want people to uh, engage with care and get on with their lives, if we can uh, influence the the pressure they're under to get their drugs, I think we at least open possibilities up for people. Sure. Because um, I've been, you know, doing working there as a clinician, um, 
you, you can't really survive if you're based on appointments because people have a different schedule than you. So doctors get extremely frustrated when they first go down there and they're used to having, you know, a list yeah, of 30 list of, patients yeah. who come in on regular times and they sit in the waiting room if you, they have to wait and they never ask any questions. And so now we're dealing with people who uh, just don't operate like that, um, not because they have a job necessarily a job to go to as we um, you know define it, but yeah. they're really busy because their life depends on it. They have you know four hours to find some money and get some drugs before they feel sick again. And so right. um, the coming to see me as a doctor is not high on their priority list. You know, if sure. they'll come if they. They score something quickly and uh, they get their drugs and then maybe yeah. they'll have time to come to their appointments or come to their job or, or you know, if we want to retrain people or whatever yeah. kind of uh, help we want to give people, as long as they spend 24-7 hustling after drugs, they, they it's really hard to find time to do that. Yeah. And even to have, a, you know, a couple hours just to sit back and look at what's happening to you, you know? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think you bring yeah. up such an interesting point here, Mark, that I never really, I never really considered as someone who's not in this every day like you are, which is just the hustle that these people have to go through every day just to mm -hmm. a find enough money to be able to get the drugs that they need so that they won't go back to feeling sick, and then on top of that, they have to actually they have to actually exist, like they have to eat, they have to sleep, yeah. and they got to find all figure that all out every single day. Every day is an adventure, and then if you're yeah. constantly um, being pushed by police, you know, the, the emphasis on tent cities and stuff. I mean, for a lot of people, having a tent in Oppenheimer Park is the most secure place they can be right now. Right. And so we spend all our time chasing them out of there. And like, now where do they go? So, sure. I mean, it, it's it, not like they're going to just yeah. go somewhere. You know, yeah. it's not like they're going to figure out a solution. It seems to me like the back of the napkin solution here, because from just listening to you talk and my own observation, I've lived here about the same amount of time. You came here in 1999. And while I'm not, I've been down there every day, like you've been, um, it seems like it's not improved at all. Like it is, every time you go to downtown East side, you drive through there, you walk around there. It's just, just the same shit. And it's been mm -hmm. going on for many, I mean, my grandfather's 95, he's still alive. And, you know, my grandmother used to work at the bank down there on, uh, uh was it Hastings and... There used to be four banks, right? Yeah, the Hastings and Maine. There's Hastings and Maine, there's, there's and banks, and yeah. he said it was it was bad, yeah. you know, back in the 30s and 40s. Not obviously like it is today. So I love that, you know, that I don't remember who it was. I think it was uh, I think it was uh, Albert Einstein who said the definition of insanity is doing the same, same thing, thing over and yeah. expecting a different result. Yeah. And I I like what you're saying. I mean, to me, it seems to simply, you know, back in the napkin solution is why don't we just give all of these people in the downtown east side a minimum amount of income every month, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. It's something far better than what, um, what is it called when you're on? Um, uh, Your welfare check. Yeah, welfare, welfare, yeah. sorry. Um, so give them uh, double, triple the welfare mm -hmm. yeah. so that they don't have to go hustling or criminal activity mm -hmm. or going to sex trade to be able to pay for a sandwich. And then give them, you know, the access to the clean drugs they need. So they, you know, the ones that want to get off it and can get off it, but the ones that don't, or the transition, at least they know they've got something that there's, is going to be clean. It's not going to put them, yeah. it's not going to put them on the deathbed. And eventually they will. I mean, the natural history of, of addiction, if you survive long enough, mm -hmm. that you stop. Right. Like it's not, you know, that I think we, uh, especially in the medical field, when we label it as a chronic relapsing disease, it, in some ways it um, allows people to uh, 
you know, take a more, a less criminal approach to things. But at the same time, it labels people and locks them into something that's forever. Like my, I'm ever going to be an addict. And uh, it's not true for a lot of people. If they have, they, they can move on. And uh, I, you know, I, I've said before that, um, you know, that people stop using drugs when they find something better to do than using drugs. I mean, right. they, they weigh the pros and cons of things. And many people from day to day, the drugs is their best option right now. Okay. And uh, if they find a better option, uh, they can start dealing with their drug use. So uh, we haven't, many people are not put in that position. And how, and, you know, I've seen a, um, a lot of success stories, but it, for a lot of people, it takes a long time. So I've followed people for 20 years and they're alive. They're on their HIV meds. Um, they're doing okay, um, but they have you know good months and bad months. Um, and then one day, unexpectedly, they'll tell me that they're not using anymore and they've got a new house or they just found a new partner or like wow. I got a dog and now I'm happy. Like it, things that I couldn't have predicted, um, but I feel that um, all the time and energy that... Uh, you know, the support systems in place kept them going, um, allowed them to get to that position. So uh, I, I re it, it's not the idea that you can just go down there and just uh, with a broom and just tell everybody, stop using drugs, here's methadone, um, move on, is there's no evidence that that would, has worked for anybody. Okay. Yeah. Not, we just can't turn it off. Yeah. The one difference I, I think in the downtown east side, my tenure is gentrification. So some of it, even looks worse now than it did because we've really squished the downtown east side. So uh, really? when I first working there at the clinic, you you couldn't get it go to a coffee shop, right? You had to make sure you brought everything you needed for the day. But now there's like very nice coffee shops, yeah. and uh, so there's nice restaurants. It has been compressed. And, I mean, yeah. there's these you know still a bit of a mix, but there's a lot. So the yeah. gentrification's really kind of yeah, just geographically pushed everybody even. Yeah, closer it used together. to be. 10, 15 square blocks was the downtown east side. Now no. it's five. Like wow. you, there's places you don't go. And we've, you know, the the enforcement is, uh, you know, uh, for decades, it's kind of ghettoized that area. So things are allowed to happen in downtown east side. They can't happen anywhere else. And if people stray out of that little confine, then they're in trouble, basically. And that's mm -hmm. why, you know, the not in my backyard thing. And so right. services have been traditionally concentrated in the downtown east side because nobody else want, will allow those services and housing. So a lot of the, it's very, very contracted now in the downtown east side and people have really nowhere to go. There's been a lot of housing units that have been built um, down there in the last decade or two, um, but not nearly keeping up with the demand because the demand just keeps getting higher. And higher. Right. Yeah. Well, Mark, let's just to wrap this up and jump quickly to vaping. Okay. Um, you're a policymaker. What are kind of some of the mo most immediate things that you would do? Because as we just, I think, both agreed, largely, you know, what we've been doing hasn't been working. Mm -hmm. You mentioned just a moment ago about, you know, s sweeping that streets up, telling these people to just, you know, take their methadone, you said. Yeah. And, and just, you know, get their lives cleaned up isn't clearly working. <laughs> yeah. So what would you recommend to policymakers today? Yeah. What do we need to do? What is What are some of really tangible i don't want to talk philosophically i mean I'd like what needs to happen on the street today to take this from where we've been in for the last 20 30 years to something far better yeah well i mean i don't the one caution is there's no magic bullet to this right sure. we've got here over decades it's going to take a while to get so i don't think there's a magic bullet but i do think the two areas that uh 
have risen to the top are decriminalization. So uh, get, you know, try and get, and I think getting people out of the hustle is the main reason for decriminal to get, uh, that would uh, um, really impact on crime rates if we allowed people uh, access to a safer drug supply. So that's, they're very tied into each other, but I do think the police should back off even more and resources that we're now using for policing should be piled into social services and uh, a reasonable income for people and to, you know, to try to bring people up economically be really critical. And a lot of money still goes into policing that uh, I think is counterproductive. Um, and the second is a safe supply. So if we look at this from a public health point of view, if there was, you know, if there's poisoned uh, romaine lettuce in your grocery store, um, they tell you don't eat this lettuce. And oh, by the way, here's some other lettuce you can buy instead, yeah. you know, and even... Oh, there'd be a total recall, it'd be all yeah, over the news. Exactly. Yeah. So we, we're in a massive poisoning epidemic that's not giving people diarrhea. It's actually killing people. And I think a only reasonable response is trying to give people an alternative. And so it doesn't mean uh, clearly um, going after fentanyl um, and trying to rid the world of fentanyl or going to China and trying to negotiate with pharmaceutical companies is totally a waste of time. There's no, um, the war on drugs or trying to clamp down on imports is a lost cause, it just makes worse drugs basically. And so um, we need to do this by offering people an alternative source of the drugs and slowly get people moved over. And the one project I'm working on now would be to give people hydromorphone pills which are cheap and they're um, legal, and people, many people would crush them up and inject them, um, but um, that's what they've been doing for decades. And I think it's, you know, it's like is a harm reduction policy. It's not, it's it's not safe, but it's much safer. So I'm trying to, you know, give people an opportunity to do that and to break down the barriers. Um, I'm working on a project that would use. Uh, uh, dispensing machine based on biometrics that people could enroll in and they could access these drugs and we could regulate them. So we know what's in the machine. We can regulate the schedule when people get them and the uh, the dose that people get. We oh, could individualize it. They could come in multiple times. Have like times a biometric, a uh, you put your fingerprint on there? It uh, just... reads the vein pattern in your palm. Okay. So it's pretty advanced biometrics, but it's like foolproof. So yeah. we know who's. Has this ever been it. tested anywhere before? Not giving out these drugs. No. Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, biometrics has yeah. been there, but uh, there's a. There, but there is a lot of apprehension to this idea. So um, I'm hoping to, we have the machine now and um, I'm just um, working on it this week and hope to get a, a, a couple people started on it in the next week or two. Wow. So you'll probably hear about that because there's a lot of interest in uh, in doing it this way and trying to break down the bo barriers and give people a little of autonomy when they get these drugs. So it's a safer supply of drugs. And there's other programs that are being developed in the city to allow people that. So I really think that that's our first step right now that we it's been four years now um, most people are still buying their drugs in back alleys the drugs have not improved in fact they've seemed to have got worse right. um, and uh, the quality is terrible and uh, we just can't you know I, I just we feel can't leave it up to a bunch of rogue uh, drug makers yeah. that are basically working. we're telling people and the medical profession has drawn the line at giving people these drugs so we give people substitute drugs methadone and buprenorphine but uh, and for some people, this has worked great, and they sh we should be giving every opportunity for people to do that. But for those it's not working on, um, then we need to offer them real drugs and real alternatives. So I think, to me, that's what I'm, you know, I'm really committed to the, the next uh, little while to uh, really focus on getting people a, a safer supply of drugs. Okay. Well, that sounds good. It's different. Mm -hmm. Sounds like a, 
You got me convinced. <laughs> Let's, uh, how are we doing for time here, Ross? Oh, wow. Come by fast. Are you okay to quickly talk about vaping? Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, this is, yeah. this you can is, splice it up and stuff. Or, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, for yeah, sure. Yeah yeah. 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 Okay. Let's, uh, uh, Mark, let's jump to the world of vaping. Okay. I only found out recently having to ask my young millennial team, what actually is vaping? Because I see the pictures mm-hmm. of these things. I don't even know. I said, is it tobacco? Is it, is it, uh, uh, cannabis, um, and we we're seeing on TV these various deaths that are occurring in in the states. I don't know if there's been any deaths in Canada. No, there hasn't been. No. Okay, and a bunch of people getting sick. There's something called a popcorn lung. Fill me in yeah. on what's going on here in the vaping. Do you do you have some insight on this? Well, this is um, I first got involved in vaping uh, two or three years ago um, because of the very population that I was talking about. Um, maybe five years ago, because I was following large groups of people who had HIV. And as re- part of research projects, I was working both here in Vancouver and also at, I was in Ottawa for a while uh, doing this kind of work. And uh, everybody's dying of tobacco-related illnesses. So all as, the, as this cohort ages from their HIV, their HIV is fine. They're taking this pill a day. Um, but they're all have chronic obstructive lung disease and they're getting lung cancers and they're everybody smoking two or three packs a day. It's just a of cigarettes of cigarettes. And for poor people, especially they don't, they don't buy $15 packs at Seven Eleven. They, they, uh, buy bootleg tobacco. So in downtown right? Eastside, you get a pack of cigarettes for $3. So the taxation really? doesn't really impact them. They're all imported from China. It's all illegal, but oh, really? everybody buys. There's illegal these. cigarettes. Yeah. They come into our, into our, really? Yeah. They're everywhere. So it's, 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 wow. it, it's depending on the, who you're dealing with, it's either $2 and 50 cents or $3. You get your pack of cigarettes. In Ottawa, it was basically all loose loose tobacco in bags, and you get $5, you could buy like a, a baggie of uh, loose tobacco, and you'd buy rolling papers with no filters. and you'd, So people were killing themselves with tobacco, and um, vaping basically is a, a safe way to deliver nicotine. I mean, so it's a, it doesn't contain so let's any of the chemicals. For those listeners who don't even know, like me, a couple mm. of weeks ago, what is vaping? I see these people with like these look like they call them electronic cigarettes yeah. and you see this puff of, I think it's not even smoke. It looks like. It's a vapor. It's mostly so water vaping? vapor. What is it? What, ha- what Tell us about just mechanically what's happening inside of this device. So it, it heats up. So it's a, a liquid that contains nicotine. Okay. Um, you heat it up. It's got some glycerol in it to make it, uh, uh, to get it aerosolized and you in, inhale it in your lungs, just like you do with nicotine from a cigarette. The nicotine's absorbed and you get the same feeling as you would from a cigarette. Only cigarettes have 7,000 chemicals, 40 of which are cause cancer. So you take all of those out of the product then, and you just give people basically um, nicotine, plus most of them have some flavoring in them. So um, again, we think benign. It, it's the same kind of flavoring in our foods and things. People could argue, well, that they're not supposed to be inhaled. Certainly not. I mean, it's not, again, it's harm reduction. So right. you- you so you're not, a pro- you're not a proponent of vaping. You're not asking everybody to go out there and start vaping. You're saying if you smoke, you should if, vape. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's I, the point here. Is yeah. not, you're not you're not the pro vape guy that says no, everybody so. should start vaping. It's more if you're a smoker, 
stop smoking, start vaping. Exactly. And, and eventually I, stop vaping. Exactly. And you can, and the beauty of the electronics and the technology is you can dial down your nicotine. Like you, people do right. want to start, they start off with a hot, off. you can wean yourself off. And there's, I've talked that, to hundreds happen? of people. people yeah. Do that? yeah. Hundreds of people. Cause it, the, the fascinating thing about cigarette smokers is 90% of them want to quit. So you have a pretty, you know, an audience that's really on side with you here. Yeah. And how can I quit? I, I just don't seem to be able to quit. Yeah. And so, uh, well, let's get the get you the nicotine that you need. Let's get rid of all this toxins in the cigarettes yeah. by burning tobacco, which is terrible for you. Yeah. And then we can work on weaning you down on the nicotine. Because yeah. there's know? no weaning down of cigarettes, right? No. People, well, people tried it. Like I used to smoke two packs. Now I smoke one pack. And last week I only smoked 15 a day. I mean, it, so people yeah. play with, like they're, everybody's trying to reduce for the yeah. most part, but uh, they have a lot of trouble doing it. There's 5 million people in Canada who smoke. Is it so really? it's a five million out of thirty-three yeah. million. Or yeah, it's about twelve in can in BC. The, it's about twelve to thirteen percent, and okay. we have the lowest rates actually. Yeah. So, yeah. but in uh, Callaway, it's like sixty percent. In Newfoundland, I think it's twenty-five percent. I mean, it, again, there's a lot of overlap with socioeconomic status. So, uh, poor people smoke sure. for the most part. Um, so, what about yeah. all these young? It seems like vaping's become really hip. It's like it's like we almost got to a point where teenage kids were like okay finally not realizing like smoking is not cool yeah and it and never also, is it hasn't become cool again so this idea that um, all of a sudden kids are going to vape and then start buying cigarettes makes no sense like no, no that's not what i'm saying no, I'm but that's, that is one of the arguments like so we're it, allowing right. kids who don't smoke they're taking up vaping they're getting that's addicted to, to nicotine oh, I see. and now they're going to start smoking yeah. there's no evidence that's happening yeah. cuz we have demonized oh, I, smoking and right. and youth don't want to be smelly and there's yeah. nothing cool about lighting right. up a cigarette right <laughs> but there's coolness but about vaping yes yeah. that's what i'm talking about so yeah. i've never heard that argument but let's talk about that for a moment about mm -hmm. the idea that uh well i mean it seems very obvious to me from what you've described that vaping is a far better alternative to smoking cigarettes but with vaping developing as it has, this company Juul has been yeah. impressed a lot. Um, that it's it's there's I, I don't know the numbers, but I gotta assume there's a ton of teenagers out there who've gone from not doing anything, they weren't smoking cigarettes because yeah. of the reasons you've just described, but all of a sudden vaping's pretty yeah. cool. No, so the numbers are startling. So uh, you know, twenty-five percent of kids have tried vaping um in the last six months. But the underneath that about 5% say they vape 20 out of 30 days. So those kids may be considered that they've become addicted to nicotine. They really need it. So the, these num these astronomical numbers are just the, in keeping with, have you tried, have you drank at a party in the last six months? Uh, have you tried cannabis in the last six months? So kids try stuff for sure. So vaping is, is cool and they, people hand it around. So I'm sure and it's probably, I'm not saying this is a, mm -hmm. is an okay thing, but it's a predictable thing with youth, but then, but a very small number are regular vapors and will go on to be nicotine addicted. There will be some though. So we have to do what we can to uh, get education out there and to try to limit the access to these products for youth. So I'm, you know, I'm totally on side with that. This okay. is, these products were not designed to get new people using nicotine. Okay. Um, but for smoke, but we've lost the whole narrative about what about the smokers? Like we've, sure. and we've given the, because the messaging has been so distorted that um, a lot of people who 
did transition to vaping are now questioning whether that was a good idea for them because look at all these illnesses that are happening now. And so there's oh, for a, sure. Yeah. I, I mean, if and I these, was a smoker, I'd go back to smoking. Yeah. Now, what I've seen off the press. Which is crazy because the, and vaping has been around for like 10 years. There's 3 million people who have transitioned in the UK from smoking to vaping. There's not one of these cases in the UK. I mean, it's nothing to do with nicotine vaping. And it's come out now, very recently, late in the day, that um, it seems like that maybe all or 95% of these cases were THC and oils that were put in these THCs. And uh, and to be clear, yeah. for again, for the ignorant listeners out yeah. there, THC is... Is uh, cannabis. Like, cannabis. Yeah. yeah. So uh, people... And it's fascinating when you look at the map of illnesses across the United States, it wasn't correlated with the number of youth that were vaping. It was correlated with the amount of prohibition around cannabis. So you take states really? that have a very tight control of cannabis and kids all of a sudden heard, oh, I can try cannabis through vaping now. And they buy these these pods and they got sick because they couldn't, they, they, they had no so opportunity to like smoke. California and Colorado didn't have as many no, problems no, as no. like the- uh, Wisconsin right. and Missouri and these places where <laughs> first North Dakota, like these places that had the hot, tightest restrictions on cannabis were the ones where you got all these cases happening. I think they, they, the big bust they found of in somebody's basement of all these uh, contaminated pods was in Wisconsin. And so, I mean- so it never made any sense that so a company like uh, yeah. Jewel's been an unfortunate recipient of, exactly. of the bad Not press. One like, kid person has got sick from using a Jewel. Really? Yeah. No, they one. could have got no. They yeah. could have got addicted to nicotine. I think Jewel sure. is uh, has to answer for their marketing strategies to yeah. youth. I think that was reckless and bad on their part the way that happened. Now. Uh, most of the stuff that's been brought up on their marketing is from 2016, 2017. I mean, recently that hasn't been their strategy, but um, it what, lifestyle pictures of people using Juul was part of their uh, campaign, yeah. and that was very damaging, and that should never have happened. I totally don't should, support should them, vaping but, companies uh, like Juul be uh, held to the same lim like limitations of marketing as uh, tobacco companies in your view? I don't think so because no. we want to incentivize people to switch. So I think taxes should be lower on vaping products and the, mm -hmm. and the advertisements as far as the health benefits should be um, put out there. I think it's Isn't the province right. of BC about to implement some really strict yeah. tax regulations on vaping? Yeah. I'm, I'm not supportive of that. You're not supportive of yeah. that. And yeah. banning flavors. So the other misconception is that adults don't need flavors, but that is a huge attraction. 90% of people who have successfully transitioned use flavors. So adults like flavors too. Now we don't need to have like princess bubble gum and stuff, but yeah. we, we can uh, limit some of that. Um, but um, people need a range of flavors. So, but the whole vaping industry, including Juul's, been caught up in this moral panic around all these illnesses and deaths. There's 42 moral deaths. Moral panic. I love that. It's great. Yeah. yeah. It's a moral panic and everybody's, uh, yeah, just like we have to stop this, you know. And the, the other irony is, well, banning and prohibition doesn't work anyways. Right. So you can right. make As we've all just the spent laws. the last yeah. hour talking about. Yeah. Go to yeah. town on banning this. Right. Like, it's just going to lead to more black market unregulated products, right? So Which doesn't get taxed. Yeah, it doesn't get taxed at all. <laughs> so uh, I think the products need some taxing, but everything to do, everything can, should be less than tobacco because we want to disincentivize smoking. So uh, we can't 
you know, make it just blanket. Well, everything it's, it, that we do for tobacco has to also fall to e-cigarettes because we, we actually want to promote e-cigarettes to people who can't stop their cigarettes. Right. So, Is there anything in this uh, proposed BC legislation that you are in favor of? Well, I think read? things that certainly advertising to kids and some restrictions on that, I'm all for that. Like yeah. I, I, I yeah. do think that, uh, that I'm, I'm all for regulated products and, and, and regulation, I'm totally 100% behind. Pe- and people who buy these products don't want unregulated. They want to know what they're getting. Sure. They want top quality stuff. They don't well, want it, you know. Is that, it's no different than the, uh, than the drug users that we just spent time exactly. talking about. Why should we want um, vapors to buy things from criminals in an alley? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there was, there's all kinds of uh, devices that people use for vaping that, again, aren't regulated. So they... They, you know, some of the ones that have been tested from, uh, you know, very cheap Chinese manufacturing have, you know, they contain heavy metals and so, like we don't yeah. want any of that, right? We want like really good quality products for people. So, did, did anyone, yeah. any, anyone from the province of BC before they tabled this legislation, call you up and get your advice? I'm. It's very hard to get my voice heard. I'm. I'm definitely. I could say upfront. I'm. I'm definitely on the outside of the public health approach to this. So the. the I'm yeah. I'm one of the few people that look at this as a really important harm reduction strategy. Yeah. Um, most public health is focused on uh, youth vaping and nicotine, and uh, to my dismay, have really not included current cigarette smoking in smokers in their uh, calculations. So basically, they're telling the five million people, look, there's probably a real safe, there's safer thing for you, but. We don't really care about you, but yeah. we certainly don't want another generation of nicotine users. And that's when the- Well, that is the message, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, the battle is set up between um, um, big tobacco, which uh, um, is you know has some of these products against the public health. products? E-cigarette, yeah. yeah. Against, uh, against uh, public health. We're trying to protect our, us all. And- uh, the, the battle should really be there's no voice for smokers in there and I'm uh, I'm trying to you know get get a voice for my the advocacy I want to do is behalf of smokers not on behalf of jewel or this big tobacco right although big tobacco the the irony to me is that um, even if it is big tobacco that we all despise they have a safer product and so it, we have, that is the key thing. And so I, I used an example the other day, but if Ford, who is a massive polluter of our environment, comes up with electric pickup trucks, we think, well, great. You know, it, they really did a bad job of our environment, but now at least they're trying to something safer. <laughs> if Coca-Cola, who's causing all this childhood obesity, comes up with sugar-free drinks, we go, oh, well, good Coke. Thank you very much yeah. for doing that for us. And Big Tobacco comes up with a safer product. We go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We don't want any part of you people are so terrible that we don't care about your product. We just think that your motives are so bad and you have such a terrible track record. We're not interested in your safer product. Well, to the person who's smoking, I think that we should be interested in their safer product. Yeah, right? absolutely. So I don't really care if it's big tobaccos behind this. The only way to scale this up in a quick way would be to would use be. big tobacco, I sure. guess, because they can Cause switch they, all their customers. Well, they've got the resources. Yeah. They have the capital. Yeah. And, and Juul, so well. this is not widely known, but um, Juul was not a big tobacco company. It started out just as a vape company. About a year ago, a tobacco company bought 35% of Juul. And so now they're considered part of big tobacco. But the strategy there was that every pack of Marlboro would have a, uh, a coupon that you could get 
dual. So the, the whole idea was to switch smokers over to dual. Like, sure, that would be amazing. That, yeah. that would have been a great strategy. And that was what they were, th were trying to do. But now that's all off the table. I think. Wow. <laughs> well, it makes sense for their perspective because yeah. it keeps the, I mean, I guess if you think about it, if I'm a tobacco company, I want to keep my customers alive. I don't want them dying. You want to keep them alive, and you know that you're, it, you know, like the oil industry, the your products die. Your writing's yeah. on the wall. Yeah. You're not, yeah. You can't, you know, tobacco yeah. use has been slowly going down in Canada. Sure. Um, so I think that, uh, and that's what public health, um, the message is. We're already doing an okay job, but it's such a slow. The reason there's less smokers over time is because they're all dying. And there's not as many new smokers, which is good. Yeah. But that is no way to solve your problem. We should be trying to keep the smokers alive too. And that, you know, that would mean that there's more smokers and more people using nicotine in Canada in the next decade or two, but at least they'd be alive. Yeah. And, sure. uh, the sh and the other, just, uh, I know you want to shut me up about this, but there, no, no, I do. This is really interesting. I mean, two, I, I do want to be the, I want to be the <laughs> counter argument, but I'll let you yeah. do this. And I'm going to, cause I want to come back. You and I are both, dads of young children. Yeah. And I guess my, my counter argument would be, well, what, what about the parent who's got the teenage kid hmm. who wasn't a smoker and now, now she or he is vaping. Yeah. They, they would say to you like, Mark, you know, if we just banned this all together, you know, yes, maybe they'd still try it, but you know, it's the same, you can make the same argument towards, you know, cocaine. Um, yeah. it's, it's a lot harder to get when it's banned. Well, what about cannabis? So you're, sure. you're way more kids try cannabis than vaping. And it was illegal until very, like totally right. illegal, not just hard to get. Yeah. Like you can buy it anywhere legally. Yeah. It was a total black market yeah. thing. So, Although I would make the yeah. argument that it's probably even easier to get now. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. I, I don't think it's really trickled down to youth. They, they still are banned so from going really into just a matter stores. Of, yeah. it's, it's, it's about making sure we limit companies like Juul and the big tobacco companies from how in which they the ways in which they're allowed to market to youth, basically, sure. no, don't allow, and then just about parents being responsible parents and educating their kids on the. And I think problem. truth, right? So truth is what it should, we should be doing, not scare tactics, because right. youth especially see right through it. So if you tell your kid that if you try, um, you know, you try marijuana, you're going to go psychotic. Yeah, they'll look at you like you're. No, I'm not. Mm. All my friends have done it, and they seem fine. So right. they, you have to tell them the truth, right? Sure. This is not. Gonna yeah. kill you. It's not good to use this all the time, <laughs> and yeah. and uh, and like vaping. I mean, you. I'd say to my kid, well, you might try it, um, but I mean, it's very inconvenient. You don't want to get addicted to nicotine, um, and you shouldn't do it. You know, like I mean, and uh, and just make it less cool. But I think it's all you have to just be honest with people, right? So this scare that. Uh, you know, parents will bring the articles from the U.S. and say, look at people, this kid died. Do you realize that? Well, they'll look at you and go, well, I've been doing it for a couple of years. All my friends do it. I'm not going to die. It doesn't make any sense. So, <laughs> so we, you know, we create this moral panic of this thing and uh, the youth see right through it, right? Okay. They don't. Yeah, they do yeah. their research. They're, they, they're probably more dialed in than we are. In the, way more dialed in. What, what's in a popcorn that. lung? So... Again, there was a, a case in the, the medical, Canadian Medical Journal just did this very in-depth article about a case, and they're calling it, the, it's suspicious of popcorn lung. When you read the case, which I have very carefully, um, it's not. And, uh, and they have no pathology to back it up. But it, this came about um, years ago when there was lung disease cases in uh, 
in uh, some factory workers who were working in a popcorn factory. And they used for flavoring for popcorn, for butter, they used something called diacetyl. And if you inhale it too much, you, uh, you can get sick. And, uh, you can, and it's a very severe lung disease that, pe that people got. Very few. It was like, um, yeah, you had to, it, mostly very long-term exposure to this thing. Um, diacetyl has been found in some flavoring. Um, pretty much all the flavoring now has been, diacetyl has been taken out of it. It was a very small amount, but um, because of, you know, the, the toxicity of this, they've taken it out of flavor. So uh, most people um, have never been exposed to diacetyl, um, which is the popcorn lung, um, okay. it, that have used flavors. Um, not but that this is one happened. example of where the mainstream media and parents might you know, yeah. tell their children, their yeah, look what teenage, happened. You're going to get a popcorn lung. Yeah, but that's not the truth. But we don't know this particular person. They don't have any evidence of even the flavors that they were using, or they have no examples of it to say diacetyl. And the um, diagnosis was based on radiologic findings or uh, um, MRIs and chest X-rays, and they don't. They're not specific. Uh, this kind of pattern has been found in some of the cases in the U.S. too that are due to THC. And we know from the, the, the story of this person is they did get um, bootlegged. They didn't just buy commercial. So um, I don't think it's anything. Um, mm -hmm. But it does feed into the uh, uh, concern that we don't know what's in this, these products. And to me, it just means that, okay, we have to regulate things. Like, you know, sure. we shouldn't be guessing where people are getting their stuff from. They yeah. should know where they're getting it from. And it should not contain, contain diacetyl, which is way better than trying to ban all flavors and then putting the whole thing underground where there will be all kinds of stuff. Sure. So, um, yeah, so I, I think it's, it's, uh, this is not an accurate um, yeah. case study of popcorn lung. So. Mark, this is an interesting mm -hmm. dilemma. We are going to wrap this up, okay. but I, wanna, I just want to finish off by saying I, I, this has been a fascinating conversation. I, I find this to be such a dilemma. You know, I, I was quite the critic, and I think I still am, of Justin Trudeau's decision to make cannabis legal I felt like, you know, why do we have to be the first sort of westernized nation to go this route? Let's let somebody else, you know, be the guinea pigs. Um, and then on top of that, I think he took the cheap route by basically saying, well, I'm going to legalize it, but I'll let all the provinces figure it out. It's been a goddamn mess in mm -hmm. provinces like Ontario. Um, he put out a tweet uh, the day after it became legal saying, we've now made it uh, harder for youth to get access to cannabis, which I think is totally not true um and we've um and we've made made it um we've basically gotten rid of the the drug dealers and the criminal activity which i also think is not true in fact i think they're probably having a heyday now because there's not enough production of legal quality mm -hmm. cannabis um and and in you using that sort of analogy that he had and um and kind of falls in line with what you've been suggesting which is if we put prohibitions on these things. People are going to go find it anyways. And then you're getting tainted, poorly produced, you know, um, drugs. Mm -hmm. And so I guess the, the dilemma I see us having in our society is where do you draw the line? Like if, if that's the, if that is true, what he has said, which is by legalizing cannabis, we've made it more difficult for youth to get access to, to mm -hmm. cannabis, which I really don't believe is true because the illegal pool of cannabis is still going to be available to them. And now there's also this legal pool. Yeah. 
and it's also eliminated the drug the drug dealers. You know, they they're they're out of business. They're just going to go to something else. Um, why not just carry that on into all the other drugs we've talked about? Fentanyl, uh, cocaine, heroin, and just legalize the entire gamut. And every time some creative, you know, rogue scientist comes up with something new, we just legalize that as well. And 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 then we go into a society where all of the stuff is available. It's regulated. I don't. Maybe maybe you have a reason. Maybe you believe that, and then maybe you have a good reason for it. But that's the mm-hmm. dilemma I think we face, and I struggle with that one as someone who's got young kids. I don't want to have my, my kids just have legal access to all these things. What are your thoughts? Well, I just I just don't really accept the slippery slope kind of thing. And okay. uh, these, uh, what's going to make cannabis like? I think the, the way cannabis stood, I don't think the number of users was going to go up that much because of legalization. What's going to make the number of users go up? Is different formulations. So that's if 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 uh, companies start putting this in beverages, where you have a choice when you go in the bar, I can have a beer, I can have wine, or I can yeah. have some kind of THC drink. Sure. I think that a lot of people who normally would never touch it would. And because uh, well, there's a huge stigma with smoking. Exactly. Right? You and I, you know, well, I don't know about you yeah. or me, but uh, I mean that. But the majority of people who. Uh, uh, wouldn't be caught, wouldn't be seen lining up in a cannabis store and standing out in front of a building smoking a joint. I mean, that's just right. not, you know, we just, most people just don't do that. But if there's other ways to get it, I think people, so that's, so that would open 2.0 when that comes. That which, could open up the, the um, number of people that are using it, I uh-huh. think. Uh, but without that, I think they just taking the criminal sanctions away wouldn't have that much of an impact on who was using it, but it certainly would take away their, you know, ridiculous criminal sanctions and, and limitations of people who are caught with marijuana and their criminal records and stuff, which I think was always a crazy thing. So to me, that was a big reason to decriminalize because it shouldn't be a criminal thing. We should educate people about the use. And same with, if you put, um, you know, heroin um, dispensing in London drugs tomorrow, I, like, I don't think a whole bunch of people would be flocking along the drugs. The same people who are using heroin and opioids now would want to get it because it's a regulated supply, but most people aren't users. It, they, they just were educated. I just, I don't really want to use heroin every day, you know, I, I would never do that. I, and, you know, I'm scared to death. Of, I've seen the very worst that drugs can do to people. I sure. mean, and uh, I just don't want them, basically. I'm educated. And so well, you are, but the yeah. average Canadian is not, doesn't have your experience. Yeah, in but I think education. people know, we need to, to tell people what the, what these drugs can do and the downside to it. And I think that is far more effective than, uh, you know, just, uh, scare tactics and banning and all this. We need to just be honest with people about what the upside and downside of these drugs. And, uh, and so I if the government moved it, from doing this with cannabis to going with, you know, g- 10 years from now, maybe some I'm foreseeing, like somebody says, you know what, I'm going to run on the platform that we're going to legalize all drugs. Yeah. Y- you think you'd probably be in favor of that as oh, long yeah. as it came along with that. With the regulation. And regulation. Ed- and education, education. And yeah, I think we'd be far better off as a society. And I don't right. think we'd create a big zombie population or anything. Yeah. I think people are used, like the, the biggest example right now is alcohol, where you could, people can become zombies on alcohol. Um, we totally promote it right the the in my lifetime the sure. acceptance of tobacco or acceptance of alcohol has gone way up you know right everybody talks about it it's it's yeah. incredible to me just to yeah the advertising behind it yeah. i mean i wish life was like a beer commercial yeah don't you but listening I mean, to <laughs> listening even to pop radio where 
It's just these young yeah. people talking about how drunk they got on the weekend. Right. Like that, like that was kind of taboo to talk yeah. like yeah. that, you know, when I was growing up. So anyways, it's become yeah. so normalized. And I think it's- And your point being that alcohol usage hasn't increased. It's probably just as normal as it was. As no, I think it has increased. Oh, no, I think we've gone way too far. Oh, okay. I, I think we've like, we haven't given people the true goods. This is, this can be very bad for you, right? Mm. And you shouldn't be drinking as much. And I think yeah. we've uh, just let that go in public health. So I think oh, that we've gone way too far the other way in, uh, in alcohol. In alcohol. And the damage that causes compared to these other drugs is, is no comparison. So right. uh, it's pretty hypocritical. There was a, I saw a tweet with Jason Kenney, who's like totally anti-drugs and he's yeah, uh, yeah. promoting, he just walked out of a that. private liquor store yeah. with a whole big case. Big he had a case big two, yeah. of, uh, yeah. or now he had a big case of wine. Why? It was wine. Yeah. It's so hypocritical. <laughs> like it's a drug. Like you're just like, you're promoting drugs. And then you, if somebody's using cocaine or heroin, you want them all in jail. Like it's right. just uh it's so hypocritical, yeah. um, but that's the way we. Nobody bats an eyelash because it's alcohol, so yeah. it's, it's fine. Yeah. Anyways, well, so I'm I'm totally thinking punishing people for use self medicating for drugs is an it's a terrible for that person and it's yeah. terrible for society. It wastes so much money. It it just entrenches people. The the people you know the recovery part that I was talking about before that people will eventually recover. But it, their outlook is pretty bad. If you have an ex extensive criminal record, your teeth are all sure. missing, your health is in shambles. I mean, it's it's hard to pick yourself up. And yeah. all those very serious uh, impacts aren't anything to do with the drugs. They're to do with our the way we treat people who use drugs. And uh, it, that we just put them in a situation where recovery becomes more and more difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think we can change that. Well, I know there's been a lot of talk about expunging the uh, criminal records of all the cannabis uh, uh, related non-violent cannabis related charges yeah. or uh, criminalizations has happened. It sounds seems like a reasonable yeah. reasonable. And we should do it with heroin and cocaine, like and right. again, it's, and we we could clear our jails out. If, right. if, if, <laughs> I like, mean, and uh, get and all that money, all that daily expense of keeping somebody locked up. If we put that to sort of help them get back on their feet, like we could actually make a difference. Yeah. We think nothing of continuing to increase our prison uh, budgets and police budgets and it just goes on and on and on yeah. and uh, some even a portion of that money was taken for social programming and supporting people giving them a living wage I mean we we could yeah, the flip wage. the whole system yeah Mark this has been a great conversation I've okay. kept you here far longer than I planned to but okay. uh, this has been great okay. I really appreciate it thanks for coming in we've got Mark Tyndall the professor of medicine UBC School of Population and Public Health Thanks, Mark, okay. Mark Tindall. Appreciate you coming on the show okay. today. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Mark. Bye.